Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a good weekend, and I hope all of you have had a good start to your week. It's great to be on the air, and once again we are discussing uh, Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion, and the Transformation of Early America. In this podcast segment, we're going to learn um, a great deal of information, uh, not only uh, pertaining to what's going on in Virginia, but to Virginia's neighbor uh, north, being uh, Maryland. And we're also going to learn about some uh, about a conflict that involves both the Virginia and Maryland colonies and how, and how they respond to the conflict on a uh, joint effort. We will also uh, learn about um, the area along the Virginia and what we now know as uh, North Carolina, the Virginia-North Carolina line, in terms of um, Indian and English relations. We also will be learning a great deal about someone whose name will be um, a vital, vital, um, I know I said vital more than once, but I think the reason probably why I said vital more than once was just to remind all of you to expect to hear this uh, person's name uh, very frequently going forward. If I tell you it now, then it's like, well, what's the point in even telling um, the rest of uh, what you would have to say uh, going forward in this uh, segment? So just keep an eye out for what will be uh, coming towards the end of this podcast segment as to the uh, person we will be learning about whose name will be a regular um how do I say it, a regular uh, name uh, going forward in other podcasts down the road. So let's get ready to uh, be prepared for what we're going to be learning um, in this next uh, segment to Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion and the Transformation of Early America by James D. Rice. Our leadoff question is actually going to be a two-part question. So let's start with with the uh, first part and uh, being part one of the question. Who's Charles Calvert? Do any of you all uh, know who the Calvert family is? Are they a family of uh, prominent importance? Yes, they are. Do the Calverts live in Maryland or in Virginia? They live in Maryland. Charles Calvert is Maryland's governor. And he has something in common with Virginia's governor, William Berkeley. Like Governor William Berkeley of Virginia, Charles Calvert stood against going to war for various reasons. In other words, if there's a potential conflict in sight, wouldn't it be best to try to resolve the conflict without uh, going to war right away? It should be fair to say that maybe in the eyes of men like Charles Calvert and William Berkeley, that war should be seen as a last resort when all other measures have failed. But more often than not, sometimes leaders throughout history have at times gone to war when they probably should have uh, tried other uh, resolutions first before uh, sending um, thousands of men into combat for uh, whatever reasons they felt were you know, justifiable. Of course, that's been an issue that's been going on since the beginning of time. Now, the second part, I think, is the most important one regarding uh, Charles Calvert and his family. Uh, Were the Calvert family, or rather, I should say, were the Calverts 
and that's spelled C-A-L-V-E-R-T-S. Were the Calverts Protestant or Catholic? Of course, I do know that in Virginia, you know, the majority, if not the majority, all Virginians are Protestant, and even in the late 17th century, there still is a church in England, in uh, Virginia, that um, one must adhere to, and it will remain that way into the latter part of the 18th century, um, even into um, a couple of years after the Revolutionary War breaks out. The church that in, that Virginians must adhere to is the Anglican Church, a.k.a. the Church of England. But in Maryland, um, the Calverts are uh, Catholic. The Maryland colony had become a haven for Catholic refugees, uh, seeking protection from religious discrimination as well as persecution. You know, religion is one of those issues that has um, become... It probably still has, it could probably still be seen this way in, in today's time. But even uh, when Thomas Jefferson was alive, he often saw religion as one of the greatest undoings of mankind because people persecuted each other left and right, all in the name of adhering to Catholicism or, you know, separating from the Catholic Church, uh, questioning the roles of church and state. Just because you were Protestant, it didn't always mean that you had the same freedoms as those whom adhered to the Anglican Church, or we should say in today's time, devout Episcopalians. Maryland was a colony that um, allowed for uh, those uh, whom were of the Catholic faith, like the Calverts, to um, migrate to, and with, with regards to seeking protection from religious discrimination and persecution. Um, however, it should be worth pointing out that even for all those whom were of uh, Catholic faith in the New World, I, I hate to tell you all this, but it is true that uh, Catholics were barred from holding public office in most of the 13 colonies. Catholics were barred from holding public office. Uh, they were uh, barred from practicing law. Catholics were barred from... Uh, holding any um, high-level position. In other, in other words, Catholics couldn't even participate in their um, state government. As a matter of fact, there was one family in Maryland, I've probably mentioned their name before from other uh, topics that have been discussed, the Carrolls. Uh, the Carrolls of Maryland were probably one of the uh, wealthiest landowners in colonial America, but yet they faced continuous um, discrimination based upon the fact that they were uh, Catholics. But, but fortunately enough for the Carroll family, they were so well off that they could um, have their children, um, they could have their children be tutored, um, that is by a private tutor. And of course, very few families could afford to um, have a tutor um, instruct their children. And if you had that um, luxurious accommodation, that was a sign of your wealth in society. The other option is if you didn't hire a tutor to teach your children at home, if you were well off, you could afford to send your children um, abroad, most notably your sons. And that's what the Carols did. They sent some of their sons over to France where they learned um, the, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, they got an education in learning how to become a gentleman along with learning other um, essentials. Of course, if you were of uh, Protestant faith and you adhere to the Anglican Church and you were well off, then you would have been sent to England uh, to study um, overseas. So 
I think the the more interesting thing is that um, we'll be coming upon this here shortly. Okay, so if the Calverts are Catholic, and Maryland has become this haven for Catholic refugees, is it fair to say that Maryland's head of church is the Catholic Church? You know, in other words, we have a church state uh, thing to think about here. So we have to find out here momentarily if whether or not uh, Maryland's head official religion is that of the Catholic Church. But it should be worth pointing that pointing out that uh, England has been a Protestant nation since the 1530s. England sees itself as the head defender against an institution being that of the Catholic Church, whose rulers had been given unchecked powers for many of years if not, should I say, centuries. And of course, um, Mary, I should say Queen Mary, she was the last uh, monarch in England whom tried to restore Catholicism to um, England. And for those of you who aren't familiar, most of you would be, but for those of you who aren't, there is a beverage called Bloody Mary. A Bloody Mary... Um, the reason why they call the beverage of Bloody Mary is because of uh, Queen Mary and how she went about um, vigorously uh, persecuting Protestants, not just uh, persecuting them in terms of uh, having them uh, killed, but many Protestants were jailed under her um, regime, all because they did not adhere to the uh, Catholic Church. Of course, King Henry VIII uh, wanted to break away from the Catholic Church. Uh, for one, the Church had had excessive um, domain over lands to where, you know, it wasn't so much that the church uh, controlled people from a religious standpoint, but that the church owned so much property that many began to question just how much authority the church should have over people's everyday lives. So for King Henry VIII, it wasn't so much a question of the land, it's what lied below the land in terms of resources. So land and resources, being natural resources, do go hand in hand. And so for Henry VIII, um, he wanted to divorce one of his wives, and the Pope refused uh, to grant him the annulment. So that is one of the reasons why we get this Protestant Reformation, is largely because Henry VIII, of what he did, he um, declared an official separation from the Catholic Church. So um, the Calverts... Although they are Catholic, are they um, viewed in the eyes of uh, Protestants as being worthy people in terms of uh, being respected in the greater um, society of uh, greater Maryland society? Well, the answer is yes. The Calverts are, are spared largely in part because they appointed Protestant governors. Okay, so people have this fear that the Catholic Church is going to... Um, create something just like they did in Europe where they reigned supreme and you know persecuted those whom didn't adhere to their teachings or doctrines. But it turns out that the Calverts, given that Catholicism is still frowned upon in, in, in the New World, the Calverts aren't going to um, flaunt their name, they're not going to flaunt their status, but what they're going to do is they're going to compromise and that they are uh, going to appoint Protestant governors as well as recruiting Protestant settlers. 
Maryland is a proprietary colony, and I will uh, talk more here momentarily about what constitutes a proprietary colony. But Maryland was established in 1632, 25 years after uh, the English first arrived into what we now know as present-day Jamestown, Virginia. The um, colony of Maryland was bestowed to George Calvert, who would become the first Baron Baltimore, a.k.a. Baltimore, Maryland. Charles I, um, by appointing Protestant governors to luring uh, Protestant settlers into Maryland, helped curtail the Calverts from being accused of trying to institute Catholicism on English soil. So, had the uh, Calverts not appointed Protestant governors to encouraging Protestant settlers into Maryland, I think it's fair to say that the uh, Calverts' uh, presence would have been uh, short-lived um, from a long-term standpoint. Okay, so what is a, what is exactly a proprietary colony, given Maryland herself had become one in 1632? What do you all think um, constitutes a proprietary colony? Well, for one, a proprietary colony um, is, a, is one where all the land belongs to a monarch. Okay, so if the land belongs, if all the land belongs to a monarch, couldn't one say that that's an abuse of power right there? If all the land belongs to the monarch, then how do the people below whom are settling in this colony have any say over um, access to land? Okay, well... Um, to soothe your all's concerns, okay, we can already establish that, yes, uh, a proprietary colony being one where all the land belonged to the monarch, but yet the king or the queen was required to, to divide up the land. Okay, so now we have a little sigh of relief here. The reason why the king or the queen would be um, required to divide up the land is because in order for the system itself to be fair, given that we've got, you know, um, a group of people going over to settle in the New World, this system enabled individuals or companies to be granted commercial rights. Rights, or rather I should say responsibilities, or rules, where the individuals or companies had to adhere to via the grantor, the grantor being the head of state, that is, the king or the queen, for establishing colonies. The proprietors, or rather I should say the heads of state, were the ones whom were responsible for selecting to choosing the colonial governors, let alone the uh, count and perhaps the council of state, depending on the colony. It is worth pointing out that in 1660, a fellow by the name of Josiah Fendall he was a Maryland. Um, he was a governor of Maryland. He was a, a, pro, a Protestant governor. Under his um, reign as governor, he tried to remove the. Uh, he basically tried to uh, remove altogether the colony's proprietary government. And who's in charge of Maryland's proprietary government? The Calverts. So Josiah Fendall wants the Calvert family out altogether. He is totally anti-Catholic. Uh, he does not want any um, makeshift religion in Maryland whose presence alone would be considered a danger to church and state. 
Well, this was a failed coup. Of course, another word for coup is removal. However, the Calverts go out of their way to stick their necks out for Governor Fendall. They held firm in their relations with uh, Protestants. Rather than seek a war with all of those whom were responsible for this um, coup, in other words, coup attempt, that is, those along with Governor Fendall whom came together, the Calverts decided to, um, I guess you could say, uh, uh, pardon uh, Governor Fendall. They, um, they basically excused his um, activity. So Governor Fendall avo avoided execution altogether, but there were uh, critics. Of course, there are always critics with something. The critics spoke out against the leniency. In other words, these critics probably were more than likely uh, Protestants. Okay, we don't mind having the Calverts around, but isn't it fair to say that if the Calverts engage in this activity of leniency too much, that it could lead to other coups down the road, uh, other attempted coups, or, or let alone maybe assassination? It's a very fragile time, to say the least. And here again... Maryland and Virginia's governors were not in a were not in any um, place whatsoever to raise taxes nor pay for a war. In other words, you know it's one thing to raise taxes, but you have to make sure that you're raising taxes for the right reasons. You know, raising taxes is necessary if you are going to go to war. Raising taxes is necessary if it means for um, money that can go towards building a fort to keep out enemies. But at the same time, if you're going to war, you better make sure you have a united front. Because if you don't have a united front, there are there can be some uh, major negative uh, setback repercussions. What Virginian, whom was well connected to his colony's eastern shore region, arrived to the mainland around 1676? Or rather, I should say he would have arrived to the mainland between 1675 and 1676, but more so 1675. Does anybody want to take a guess at whom this uh, Virginian was who would be well connected to his uh, colony's eastern shore region? Was it John Custis? Or was it John Washington? The answer is John Washington. He came to the Potomac River shortly after incidents had broken out between Indians and English peoples within Stafford County. He got approval uh, to develop a 5,000-acre tract between the Dogue Creek and Little Hunting Creek. It turns out, folks, that this property alone would later become the site of a of an estate that's still in existence today, an estate that has been open to the public for many of years, an estate that was saved from ruin uh, about three or four years before um, America's Civil War began. It was an estate that, um, that was built by someone else from within um, the family, although when the estate was first built, it was not the same-looking estate as we know it uh, today. Of course, estates don't always get built the way we see them in today's time from when they were built overnight. Estates, grand estates do take time. They get, um, they undergo major um, repairs. They undergo major undertakings for that matter. 
I should point out that the um, property on which uh, John Washington um, built his um, home along this 5,000-acre tract would later become Mount Vernon. And, of course, Mount Vernon um, was the home that George Washington inherited from his half-brother, Lawrence. And the reason why it's called Mount Vernon is because uh, George's brother, half-brother, Lawrence, served under a British officer named um, Sir Edward uh, Vernon. I'm not sure what his official military title was, but if his uh, first name was um, under a unique title of Sir came about, then obviously it was a high-ranking position, but... Um, George's half-brother Lawrence had a lot of regards for um, Edward Vernon, for whom he named the estate Mount Vernon in honor of. Of course, George would inherit Mount Vernon when, um, when both Lawrence and his wife died in the early uh, 1750s. So Mount Vernon included seeing um, the Susquehannock's fortified town at the entrance of the Piscataway Creek. So could it be fair to say that maybe John Washington, who was the great-grandfather to America's future father of their country, being George Washington, is it fair to say that he chose this estate not just so much because of the view of the Potomac River, but from a security standpoint? In other words, perhaps the estate he built was one for uh, security reasons, to see what was going on across the river to ensure that the Virginia side would be protected in every way possible. So Governor Berkeley turned to local leaders like John Washington and Isaac Allerton Jr. for diffusing the current hostilities involving the Susquehannock and Doeg Indians. We should be reminded that uh, the Virginia government provided lots of power to their counties, which included to a certain degree uh, of jurisdiction pertaining to war and diplomacy. We should keep in mind that um, the capital, Virginia's capital, even in 1675, is in Jamestown. Richmond will not become uh, Virginia's capital until 1780. So let's keep in mind this, folks. Is it fair to say that the journey from the Potomac River to Jamestown. Is that an easy um, travel? No. It's going to take more than two days. For all we know, it could take a week at most to get from the Potomac River to Jamestown. Have to remember, we don't have Interstate 95. We don't have a Capital Beltway. We don't have US 17, 301, 1. We just don't have those roads. I mean, we do have roads, but they're just not sophisticated like we know them um, in today's modern world. Now, what's important about a governor's council is that a uh, select um, group of men, yes it is, the governor's council is the same as a governor's cabinet, or rather I should say an administration or administrative body. The governor's council, what makes this different from, say, in Virginia, you know, the lower body is the House of Burgesses. The House of Burgesses debates and uh, brings forth um, brings before um, bills uh, or amendments uh, to be introduced where they can be debated. But it's the upper house that um, convenes with the governor, being this uh, governor's council, or I should say, council of state, 
and it is the Council of State that brings forth that brings um, the bills before the governor, and they are the ones that get the governor's final consent. And once the, they get the final consent from the governor, then the governor signs those bills into law. And of course, if it's a matter involving what we would think of in today's time as national security or security on a statewide level that is a matter of um, what we would think of as close to being national importance, the governor's council addresses that matter directly to the governor. Now, did Maryland, like Virginia, did Maryland have a governor's council? Yes, Maryland did. So, Governor Berkeley instructs um, John Washington and Isaac Allerton to undergo a, um, what we might think of as in today's time as like a covert mission operation, but it turns out that Washington and Allerton do the opposite. They go about writing to the Calverts, requesting that Maryland give that Maryland provide 250 horsemen pertaining to the mission against the Susquehannocks. So when Governor Calvert received the letter, he read it to his council, that is this request. And did the council approve the request to, to provide for 250 horsemen or up to that number? The answer is yes. So this is an example of where we might think of in today's time as uh, checks and balances. One body isn't overpowering the other, but it is. But we should be reminded that consent is required, and you know, yes, the uh, the council of state can go must go before the governor, but the council of state should always keep in mind that there are times that yes, the governor will approve the request, and there will be times when a governor won't uh, approve a request, and if the request isn't approved, think of it as like a modern day veto. So, again, this is a good case of where checks and balances are, are coming into play. Now, we go now to September 26th of 1675. Colonel John Washington, along with militia officer Isaac Allerton, including Maryland Major Thomas Truman, conducted a retaliation raid against the Susquehannocks, whom had killed three Virginians due to a trade dispute. The Susquehannock's fort stood eight feet above Piscataway Creek and had palisaded walls that allowed for lookout and protection from many angles. Very well uh, constructed, to say the least. All sides did meet in person, but the meeting didn't go smooth. Now, we did learn from the last podcast about a, a fella on the Susquehannock side named um, Haring... His name was Harindra. Um, I can go back to it here in just a moment. Um, but his name was uh, the following of, uh, yes, Harignara. Sadly, Harignara had died by this time. And so there were other men whom had took his place. So, obviously, uh, there are delegations of people meeting. And yes, it, the meeting hasn't gone smooth. The Susquehannocks have gone as far as telling Major Truman that the Iroquois, or rather the Iroquois Five Nations, had killed the three Virginians. But the problem was that they had too far of a start in being pursued. The Virginians went as far as pointing out that the three Susquehannock men 
were the chief culprits and that they were just trying to find an easy way out. Hate to say this, but even back then, people rushed to judgment. You know, yes, there is a court system, but unfortunately we have to be reminded that even though, yes, a court system does exist even in 17th century, it only applies, it really only applies to uh, primarily um, people of, uh, of the white race. Um, if the court is, if the courts are willing to listen to uh, Indian concerns, that to me, um, I guess you could say it, it, it's a milestone, but most of the courts are, aren't interested in listening to those um, who are of, um, I guess we could say even then, of a different race or a nationality or ethnicity. I mean, it doesn't make it right, but it did happen. So, yes, it is fair to say that even in the 17th century, we have not gotten this notion or principle of the right to a fair and speedy trial, that everyone deserves the right to a fair trial and is innocent until proven guilty. Did tensions on both sides drag into the following month of October 1675? Yes. Uh, for starters, uh, Susquehannock leaders placed a white flag of truce outside their fort with the hopes of resolving the outs with the hopes of resolving outstanding matters via uh, non-acts of violence. They were hoping that they could do all of this without any um, blood having to be shed. But, unfortunately, uh, an encounter, encounter instances um, happened where, um, where there were um, confrontations between uh, the Susquehannocks and the English. The English uh, were very, very determined that they were going to um, take over this fort and basically... Uh, seize all of those um, hiding uh, within, inside, within the inside of the uh, confines of the palisade. So day in and day out, the English simply have no luck in seizing this fort. But they, along with the Susquehannock and Piscataway forces, whom have now joined with the Susquehannocks, go about settling into a long siege. Siege, meaning a battle that's going to last uh, more than one week. English ships, however, as of right now, are getting the upper hand. They're monitoring the Potomac River and the Piscataway Creek day in and day out, so they're monitoring this at both day and night. They have pretty much effectively cut off all escape and relief from the outside. So wouldn't it be fair to say now that the English are getting or could come away with a slam-dunk victory? It's possible, but, you know, believe it or not, uh, momentum has a way of changing, even when it's least expected. After the start of October, English confidence behind the mission began declining to where each failed attempt in breaking past the walls, or let alone breaking past the walls, fort entrance meant greater strength for Indians, whom over a six-week span killed or wounded 50 Englishmen, along with capturing many enemy horses. So just when the English thought the Indians would cave in, it just so happens that it didn't turn out to be that way. The Indians held their ground 
and it is probably fair to say that had the Piscataways not joined along in helping the Susquehannocks, that it is possible that per perhaps the English might have come away victorious. So the more um, allies that the Susquehannocks had, the better off they would be when it came time to um, muster their revenge. Early November of 1675, the Susquehannocks uh, left their fort. I know now we're thinking to ourselves, this, this must be crazy. Why would you leave your fort knowing that if you leave your fort, you could automatically be taken as a prisoner of war? That's what I thought. But it turns out that the Susquehannocks left their fort while the English militiamen were sleeping off duty. You know, if you really want to get the upper hand, or let alone retain it, even when it comes to nighttime, if you are an English militiaman, wouldn't you think it'd be smart to have um, people on guard during the night? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think it'd be smart to have people rotating? I mean, yes, just because it's dark and it's nighttime, yeah, you might say, okay, we'll just... Um, call it a night and go to sleep and come morning we'll just resume what we did the day before and the day out in the day prior the problem is that um here the english militiamen probably got cocky they rested too much on uh, their laurels they underestimated the indians so what ends up happening folks the um susquehannocks enter militiamen encampments where 10 or more Englishmen were assaulted so badly, they had no time to retaliate back. This was a, um, I guess you might think of it as like a little guerrilla attack, uh, irregular style uh, fighting, where uh, one side is completely caught off guard to where um, they have no means of uh, being able to regroup, they have no means of uh, being able to strike a counter-assault attack. Some colonists saw the Susquehannock's victory, and this, this word was in quotes, they, they saw the Susquehannock victory as one of, and in quotations, the word wonderful. Why wonderful? Well, I'll mention that here in a moment. But the Susquehannock's victory in the eyes of some of these colonists, it was viewed as being one of wonderful power, being that of supernatural forces which resembled what took place come the start of 1675. And remember what happened at the start of 1675? What happened in the sky? There was a comet. There was a huge, huge um, clusters of passenger pigeons, which had not been seen. Um, they hadn't been seen in, in the skies and being the last time 30 years earlier with the last major Indian uprising in 1644 that ultimately led to Opechancanough's uh, ouster and uh, death. And then the locusts that came about, which pretty much, the locusts pretty much ate everything in plain sight. So what was taking place in uh, early November of 1675 with the Indians extracting their uh, revenge on the militiamen it resembled something very powerful. In other words, mysterious works, whether they come from the sky or from above the ground, mysterious works are everywhere. They're invincible, but yet they remain inevitable. 
So this is a situation now where both sides have have struck um, at the heart of one another, but yet neither side has come away as the true victor. Had Virginian had Virginia rather maintained a fort along the Appomattox River south of the James Rivers south of James Rivers Falls since 1646. What do you all think? Had Virginia maintained a fort along the Appomattox River south of the James Rivers Falls? Yes, uh, the fort was um, led by a veteran council member and militia officer being that of Abraham Wood. The Appomattox River went southeast across Virginia's Piedmont and into the southern Appalachian Mountains, connecting Indian towns in south in the southeast with Virginia and as far north as Canada. Now, whenever I think of Appomattox, I always think of that as the place where the United States Civil War um, it didn't come uh, completely to an end, but the reason why Appomattox is important is because that is where uh, Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to um, Union General Ulysses S. Grant. I haven't been back to the Appomattox Courthouse in many years, but I did go once as a child. But, um, but yes, whenever I think of Appomattox, I always think of um, the Appomattox Courthouse where uh, Robert E. Lee formally surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant. But uh, the Indians uh, didn't call it Appomattox. They referred to it as Appomattox, the Appomattox River. So it is fair to say that even the uh, Appomattox River is a vital hub. Think about it. Um, from uh, Virginia's going into uh, Virginia's Piedmont and into the southern Appalachian Mountains, connecting with Indian towns in the southeast, with including Virginia and going as far north as into uh, present-day Canada. Uh, it, we have to remember, I mean, yes, we're still, at this time, you know, we're still exploring and developing uh, colonies, but we must keep in mind that Virginia, folks, we don't have a West Virginia just yet. We don't have a, an Ohio. We don't have a Michigan. So it is fair to say, and we've got to keep continuously reminding ourselves that Virginia Go, might as well be going into might might as well be comprised of what we now know as modern day Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin. I mean, think about it. People are convinced that Virginia goes all the way to the Great Lakes. So, when we say north into Canada, you know, the Great Lakes go in four of the five Great Lakes go into Canada. So, yes, uh, the Appomattox River. Yes, we can't underestimate the uh, power of that river uh, during this time. Abraham Wood had a, had a regular trade practice um, within the southern um, Piedmont, and he maintained close trading ties with the Okanichis, whom lived along the areas nearby the Dan and the Roanoke Rivers, which um, are located in uh, present-day Clarksville, Virginia, and, of course, when I think of Clarksville, Virginia, I think of uh, Carr Lake. And Clarksville is on uh, U.S. 58, in case any of y'all are wondering uh, exactly where that is uh, located. It's uh, located in uh, Mecklenburg County, uh, which is uh, which is adjacent to uh, Lunenburg County. But it's uh, located right along the Virginia-North Carolina line. 
And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the with Carr Lake, that lake was uh, that lake became an official um, lake back in the 1950s. The Roanoke River was seen as uh, it was seen as being very vital behind controlling Virginia's access to the southern um, to southern trade on the part of the Okanichi's jurisdiction. The English were able to trade uh, with Indians past the Roanoke River as long as those Indians were willing to learn um, the Okanichi language. And if they did that, this would allow them to join the, the greater trade circle. Okay, that's a good thing, but what about, what if, what, what do you all, what do you all exactly think um, made the Okanichis even more um, dominant in terms of their presence along the Roanoke River? The Okanichis had access to English guns and ammunition. Anytime an Indian tribe or Indian tribes or a nation alone had access to English guns and ammunition, that just bolstered that that just furthermore bolstered their defenses. It it also bolstered um, helped bolster their um, status as well. Of course, even when the English first came to Virginia in 1607, one of the things they did trade for, beside in terms of giving Indians of the Powhatan Confederacy, besides uh, copper pots and metal tools, they did provide them with. Um, with uh, guns, or what we call rifles, and uh, or muskets, or ammunition, because they had never seen anything like that before. It was a faster way of uh, being able to hunt when it came to hunting a uh, live game. Other Indian nations did compete with the Okanichis, which did give Virginia traders alternative sources of trade goods while maintaining close relations with the new English colony of Carolina. Okay, so right now, folks, we don't have North or South Carolina just yet, but we have a colony called Carolina, which got established in the early 1660s, around, say, about 1663. Abraham Wood faced rampant competition from the Carolina traders, including those near the falls of the James, like Thomas Stegg and his nephew, William Byrd. Anytime you hear of the Bird family in Virginia, I always think of um, historic Route 5 in uh, Charles City, uh, most notably plantations along Route 5. When I think of uh, plantations, I often think of Berkeley and Shirley plantations. Um, I also think of Williamsburg because the Bird family was very, very active in um, colonial um, Williamsburg. The Birds, the... Uh, the Carters, the Randolphs, the Custises, the Lees, just to name some of some very, very uh, powerful Virginia families. Uh, the birds are up there. After inheriting his uncle's Indian trade and plantation at the falls of the James River in 1670, whom did William Byrd have for a business partner come 1675? All right, here's the big one, folks. Okay. I think you all probably already know it, but I'm just telling you now the big one because going forward, it's going to be um, common. Nathaniel Bacon. Remember Bacon's Rebellion and the Transformation of Early America? We're probably wondering who, for whom exactly, you know, we know the last name's Bacon, but who, what's this person's first name? Nathaniel. 
Nathaniel Bacon was born in uh, Suffolk County, England in 1647. What do you know? There's Suffolk, Virginia. Okay, Suffolk, Virginia, Suffolk, England. He came from a well-to-do family. He was the only son of Thomas and Elizabeth Bacon. He was educated at the University of Cambridge, but during the early 1660s, he uh, sadly squandered his time. In other words, he didn't take his studies very seriously. So Thomas Bacon has decided that he's had enough of his son's, um, what do you call it, neglect of studies to where he um, cuts off his tuition expenses. He decides to have him be, be tutored by a well-known scientist named John Ray. John Ray viewed Nathaniel Bacon as someone who was in fact quick, but yet he is a man, he is a young man whom is very impatient. Impatient, what does that mean? In other words, could it be that maybe Nathaniel Bacon doesn't always think before he speaks? Could it be that Nathaniel Bacon is an impulsive individual? It could mean a lot of things, but the fact that he's impatient, you know, even um, given that he's coming from a well-to-do family, shouldn't that, I mean, I'm not saying that for those who don't come from well-to-do families that it would be the opposite, but, you know, to think that this fella comes from a well-to-do family, don't you think he would have would have learned or let alone appreciated some of the uh, fine uh, values and becoming a true gentleman, uh, you would hope. Uh, the good news is that he did go back to Cambridge uh, when he was a few years older from the time he, his father had cut off his tuition expenses. He did earn a degree from Cambridge and also earned a law degree. Interesting, he is a lawyer. Now, despite his status as the eldest son of a wealthy gentleman, there were those from within high-end British society whom viewed Nathaniel Bacon with concerns ranging from jealousies within his family to personal character and ethics. So is it fair to say that those from within high-end British society view Bacon as someone who is jealous of other family members? In other words, is, could, could it be that Nathaniel Bacon is resentful of other family members' uh, successes, whether it's an uncle or a, or a sister or a cousin? I mean, is it fair to say that Nathaniel Bacon could be jealous of other family members' successes? Yes. Could it be with his personal character that it, um, in today's time we would think of someone who has multiple personalities as having a personality disorder or let alone bipolar could it be that nathaniel bacon was one of those people that as he got older he just became harder and harder for others to figure out in other words they people around him didn't might not know what to expect from one day to the next yes and his ethics in other words is nathaniel bacon an honest person is Nathaniel Bacon someone who is willing to put aside his personal differences and be willing to compromise with those around him, even if he doesn't always agree with everything 100%? A lot of, uh, a lot of questions to ponder with regards to who this Nathaniel Bacon really is. In 1670, he married Elizabeth Duke, who was the daughter of a Suffolk gentleman, well, 
let's find out here. Did Mr. Duke like Nathaniel Bacon? The answer is no, he did not. So if Mr. Duke didn't like Nathaniel Bacon, did his daughter still marry Nathaniel? Yes. And because his daughter went through with marrying Nathaniel, Elizabeth's father permanently disowned her. Mr. Duke, it is fair to say that Mr. Duke more than likely saw some things regarding Nathaniel's character, which did, in his eyes, raise red flags. We have to keep in mind that uh, people back in this time, uh, young, young individuals, did defy their parents' authority. Sometimes that may not have been a bad thing, depending on the issues at stake. But in other instances, defying authority also more than likely meant being disowned altogether. So defying authority from, from within the family, no matter what your status was in society, and yes, this happened in high-end society, folks, it did happen to where uh, family members were disowned. Nathaniel Bacon was also accused not long after um, getting married. He had been accused of trying to, to defraud a wealthy neighbor of his inheritance. In order to uh, prevent uh, further um, conflict or tension regarding this matter, Thomas Bacon sent his son overseas to the Virginia colony with the hopes of escaping prosecution. The summer of 1674 saw Nathaniel Bacon arrive into the Virginia colony with enough money to place him at the top tier of the um, planter, or we should say the planter aristocracy group. He brought with him about 1,800 pounds of money. I'm not sure what that would be the equivalent to in modern-day American dollars, but if 1,800 pounds of money was enough to place him at the top tier of the uh, planter uh, society or the plantation aristocratical society then we know that he uh, then we know that he was doing um, totally fine without any um, what do you call it without any uh, unnecessary questions needing to uh, be brought forth by others whom would have said hey why should this guy be allowed into the top tier of society when all of us are trying to make our way up there but hey, it might be fair to say that even back then, money found, as that old saying goes, money talks. So even back then, money had, money had a way of being able to um, make a statement. So luckily for Nathaniel Bacon, he already um, knew of two people who, whom he was related to in the Virginia colony. There was another, um, there was a cousin named Nathaniel Bacon so this Nathaniel Bacon was a wealthy planter and a member of the governor's council. And then we had Francis Berkeley, who was Governor William Berkeley's wife. Young Nathaniel's status, along with his wealth and connections, did get him a seat on the governor's council. So yes, we can say that it does pay to have connections. It also pays to come from high-end society from England. It also pays to have wealth. All of that can definitely get you a, a seat on the governor's council. But it was his personal demeanor, which showed all too well, where he became a man full of pride, arrogance, and self-centeredness, which often appeared when speaking before the governor's council. So is it fair to say that, that Nathaniel Bacon is a man whom 
falls into the philosophy of I, me, myself, yes. Is it fair to say that Nathaniel Bacon could be a control freak, for all we know? Yes, he very well could be, because for Nathaniel Bacon, it's all about him. It's all about what he wants and whatever means it's going to take to to get his objective fulfilled, even if it's going to mean um, upsetting those from above, upsetting those from within the inner circle, being the governor's council. Nathaniel Bacon, really, it just doesn't seem like, based upon what I've read so far, what I read in the book, that Nathaniel Bacon doesn't really care about how others around him feel. He doesn't seem to have a lot of empathy or compassion but is it fair to say that Nathaniel Bacon could be the equivalent of what we see in government in today's time? Of course, not trying to be political, folks. Not trying to make this into a, a political uh, issue, but we should be reminded of the fact that even in, in, in the days, in, in the early years when the New World was first discovered and we have legislative bodies being established, most prominently in Virginia, given Virginia was the first colony, to establish a legislative body, is it fair to say that there was partisanship? Is it fair to say that we had Burgess members, including members to the Council of State, who were self-centered, who were uh, full of pride and arrogance? Yes. It didn't make it right, but it did exist. Nathaniel Bacon decides to take up residence along the frontier. This probably doesn't come as a surprise, but he, but he did take residence along the frontier, a.k.a. the Wild West. By being far away, when we're not talking about, say, being on the Virginia-West Virginia line, for example, but by being far enough from the fall line, he can, do, he can start planning um, future um, actions. In other words, he could perhaps recruit those whom live along the frontier who perhaps feel disenfranchised, perhaps feel as though Governor Berkeley has not met their requests or has not um, done a good enough job of fulfilling his promises to where if he can get enough people along the frontier to, um, to take up uh, what he firmly believes in, that, uh, that there could be the work of a potential uprising. So, yes, Nathaniel Bacon, a good example of what um, happened was that during September 16, 1675, Nathaniel Bacon attacked and, and imprisoned a group of Appomattox Indians whom he was convinced had stolen corn. Think about this. It's bad enough that he's making an accusation against a, another party, but he doesn't have any solid evidence. Okay, if that's bad enough, what did Nathaniel Bacon do that, to me, is a no-no? He had no authority to conduct business with Indians on an individual basis. So, in other words, he never went before Governor Berkeley and requested to conduct um, a mission that would oversee, um, that basically would oversee Indian activities in ensuring that Indians along the frontier did not um, come upon uh, settlers' territory and steal uh, possessions of theirs, or let alone enter their territory without um, any proper formal consent. So Bacon 
himself obviously has no authority to conduct business with Indians on an individual basis. And, of course, Governor Berkeley was very upset by this. Governor Berkeley knew that Nathaniel Bacon himself had to be watched. But little did Governor Berkeley himself know just how talented this rebel rouser, being that of Nathaniel Bacon, truly was when it came to not only inciting people, that is, encouraging them to take part in would-be rebellious activity, but let alone alienate people whom already have alliances with Governor Berkeley, alienating people, perhaps Indians. What, is, what do you think Nathaniel Bacon's mission is, folks? I'm not trying to get too far ahead of the game, but what do you think his mission is? His mission is not only to incite um, an insurrection, but it's but there is but there is a possibility that Nathaniel Bacon wants to alienate those whom he does not like. He does not want those people around anymore. So what Governor Berkeley doesn't know is that Nathaniel Bacon is probably already in the early stages of planning an attack. That it's not a question of whether whether or not this attack would happen. It's not a question of if. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of when. When this event could happen. And if it does happen, will Governor Berkeley's administration be prepared to to respond? Will they be able will they be prepared enough to perhaps launch a counterattack to where the government itself can remain afloat and can function? Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air uh, next time. And when I'm on the air again next, we will be discussing more about the Susquehannock's dilemma. Lots of uh, twists and turns, but more to learn. And I want to say thank you all for being such great listeners. Uh, continue to get the word out. But then again, you guys are already doing a great job with that. So take care for now. And I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Stay safe.